Remain standing for our Old Testament lesson, which is also our sermon text from Genesis chapter 32. I'll read the last 11 verses. And as I read these last 11 verses of Genesis 32, keep in mind that Jacob is 97 years old. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel... Do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. For the 97 years leading up to Jacob's wrestling match, With God. Jacob's life had already been one wrestling match after another. This story about Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis 32 is not a standalone story with a standalone theme. It's the culmination of a theme that God has been developing in Jacob's life for the last eight chapters of Genesis. This story is the climax of a larger story that we've been reading. If you've been reading Genesis through all the way back to the beginning of Jacob's life, it begins, in fact, before he's even born. So we need to go back to Genesis 25 to when Jacob was an unborn baby in his mother's and Rebecca's womb. And then we need to work our way forward, doing an overview until we get back to Genesis 32. In Genesis 25, verse 22, Jacob and his twin brother are struggling together mightily. They're wrestling inside their mother's womb. In fact, they're wrestling so vigorously that Rebecca, she goes to God and she asks, what's going on? What in the world's going on inside of me? What's happening in me? She says, God tells Rebecca that these two wrestling babies are the beginnings of two people groups. He says the two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older one shall serve 
the younger one. So Rebecca needs to get used to this. It's going to keep happening. It's not going to stop in her womb. During the birth of Jacob and Esau, what happens? They're wrestling again. Genesis 25, 25 says the first boy came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Esau means hairy. Verse 26, afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Jacob means supplanter, to supplant, to take the heel of, take by the heel So the wrestling match continues during the delivery of these twins. The very next passage in Genesis 25 records the twins going at it again, except this time as adults. Jacob is cooking some stew. Esau comes in from the field from hunting. He's exhausted, famished, and he tells Jacob that he needs some of this stew right now. How does Jacob respond? He knows that Esau cares more about his belly than he does his birthright. And so he makes a deal with Esau. He tells him that he'll give him this bowl of stew, this red stew, if Esau gives Jacob his inheritance, his firstborn inheritance. And Esau goes for this. So Jacob gains the upper hand in this lifelong wrestling match with his brother Esau. Now, it might be tempting to think here that what Jacob did was was cruel and underhanded, uncalled for, opportunist in the extreme Jacob is. However, the text gives us a different interpretation. The text paints Jacob in this very passage in a faithful light, and seems to put the blame on Esau. Genesis 25 makes a point to say that Jacob was an upright man. Genesis 25, 27 says that Jacob was blameless, upright. Some translations say mild, a mild man or a quiet man, but the word means upright everywhere else. It's the same Hebrew word, for example, that's used in Genesis 6, 9 about Noah. And Genesis 17, 1, in God's command to Abraham to be upright. So the translations, they get it right everywhere else. But here, perhaps because of the nature of this story, they don't want to paint Jacob as an upright man. But he is. That's what it means here as well as elsewhere. So Jacob was not without sin. We know that. But. He was God's chosen man, and he was an upright man overall, faithful overall. On the other hand, Genesis paints Esau as a hairy animal who spends all of his time looking for food like an animal. Esau cares more about digging into a bowl of stew than he does about a birthright. He reasons like a ravenous beast. And it wasn't as if Esau was about to die when he comes out from the field. Notice what Esau does right after he eats the stew. The author of Genesis cleverly strings together four verbs in Genesis 25, 34 to show us that Esau was not on the verge of death. And he ate and he drank and he rose and he went away. He's not on his deathbed here. 
And that's why the very next sentence in verse 34 interprets the whole event this way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Hebrews 12, 16 interprets it. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Esau was acting like a, one of the beasts that he hunted. And Jacob is learning how to be as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. Jacob's next wrestling match is with his father Isaac. A more complicated story. It should have been clear, though, to Isaac that Jacob was the son of promise. God had made this clear. It wasn't Esau. It was Isaac. While the twins were in the womb, God had spoken and said that the older will serve the younger. The covenant promises belonged to Jacob. And Esau, by his life, had made this very clear, hadn't he? He was not interested in the things of God, while Jacob showed himself to be an upright man. But Esau was blind about this. He was blind to this reality. He had made himself blind to it. The beginning of Genesis 27 tells us something very important about Isaac. It says that he was old and his eyes were dim so he could not see. Isaac's physical blindness here is a reflection of his spiritual blindness that had made him oblivious to Esau's shortcomings. God had spoken. God had made his will Known, but Isaac had turned a deaf ear and a blind eye to God's word and will. Isaac really had become like his son Esau. He was more interested in filling his belly. That's why he picked Esau. Go get me some of that food and then I'll bless you. And Genesis 27, 4, prepare me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat so that my soul may bless so that my soul may bless you before I die. Isaac lacks discernment. He's willing to compromise the messianic line for some of his beastly son's meat. So what does Jacob do about this? Well, his mom comes up with the plan. The plan is to dress Jacob up in Esau's clothes and to put animal hair all over Jacob, his hands and his neck, so that he feels and smells like his brother Esau. In the meantime, Rebecca cooks up some of this, some food just the way Isaac likes it. And her plan works. She and Jacob trick Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob, the true son of promise. Now Jacob is in a lot of trouble. Isaac almost seems to be content with the outcome. Maybe, maybe he took this opportunity, opportunity to repent of his spiritual blindness up to this point. Maybe he was thankful for what his wife and son had done and saving him for making a huge mistake. Esau, on the other hand, is filled with rage. There's no repentance at all. He vows to kill Jacob for what he has done. Jacob's wrestling match with Esau is, is taken to a whole new level. To escape his brother's wrath... Jacob flees to Padan Aram, where his uncle Laban lives. And when Jacob gets to Padan Aram, his wrestling with men continues. 
His uncle Laban turns out to be another wrestling partner. First, Laban tricks Jacob into marrying his firstborn daughter, Leah. Jacob had worked seven years for Rachel. He gives him Leah. And then he makes him work seven more years for Rachel. In Genesis 30, the wrestling spills over into the rivalry between these two wives, Rachel and Leah. Genesis 38, after Rachel's midwife had given birth to a son. Genesis 38, she says, with mightily, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. The wrestling motif is woven into this relationship as well. But as the story unfolds, things get worse for Jacob. Laban keeps changing his wages. He's not dealing honestly with Jacob. He steals Jacob's goats. He tries to keep Jacob and his family under his thumb, under his control. Jacob gets mistreated. He gets jerked around for the entire time. That he's in Padanaram working for Uncle Laban. Finally, after he had been under Laban's tyranny for decades, Jacob sneaks away while Laban is away. He's gone. So Jacob takes his whole family and heads back to the promised land. He's 97 years old. Laban is upset and he goes after Jacob. But God convinces Laban on the way in a dream to relent. And ultimately, Laban and Jacob make a covenant and they part ways in peace. Laban heads back to Padan Aram. And so here we are. Here Jacob is. He's 97 years old. His whole life has been one of wrestling with Tyrannical, greedy, power-hungry, self-centered, undiscerning, beastly men. Esau in the womb, Esau as an adult, his own father and his spiritual blindness. And then Laban in Padan Aram. So now Jacob is returning home with his family and his wealth. He had gained a lot of wealth. God had blessed him. He's an old man now. Perhaps he will finally get some rest from his life of wrestling, struggling, being set back. Surely he's put in his time of struggling. Now it's time to kick back and relax and enjoy the blessings and the promises that are rightfully his, that God said were his from the beginning. By God's decree, they're his. Some of you maybe can identify With Jacob, maybe you're not 97 years old, but you've spent much of your life wrestling. Your life seems to be one struggle after another, maybe one setback after another. And every time you think it's time to rest, time to be free from problems, at least for a season, God maybe sends you another wrestling partner, another wrestling match. Maybe you're in a place where Most of your goals, most of your desires for your family or maybe for your career, your business or just your life in general have not happened, have not come to fruition. And it it appears that they probably never will. Like Jacob, you're ready for a respite from the fight. 
you've paid your dues. Jacob had endured several lifetimes worth of disappointments and setbacks. Perhaps he was ready to retire on his fortune. Surely rest was right around the corner. No, it wasn't. Soon after Laban leaves, Jacob finds out that Esau is on his way to meet him. Not only that, Esau has 400 men and he's on his way to meet him. How could that be good news, right? Do you remember the last thing that Esau said to Jacob or about Jacob before he left? I'm going to kill him when dad's when dad dies. I'm going to kill him. Jacob shrewdly sends his servants ahead with layers of gifts for Esau in an effort to appease him. And then as Jacob is standing there alone by the Jabbok River, his life of struggle and wrestling reaches its climax. Genesis 32:24. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now we know that this man that Jacob is wrestling with is God. But who do you think Jacob thought it was, at least initially? Jacob's first thought when he sees this man probably was not that it's God. And if we were reading this story for the first time, and we didn't have subheadings in our Bible, we may not know what to think either, right? It just says a man. In fact, I would say the text encourages us to imagine who this man is. It invites us to identify with Jacob and ask, who is this man wrestling with Jacob? The very fact that he's not identified at the beginning invites us to do that. And remember, it was dark. Jacob couldn't make out his face. So who is it? Well, perhaps it's Uncle Laban. Maybe Laban had gotten halfway home and he had had a change of heart. And he decided, you know what? I'm, I'm not putting up with this. Jacob's coming back with me. I'm going to get my family, my kids and grandkids. Or maybe it's Jacob's father, Isaac. Even though Isaac seemed to repent of trying to bless Esau over Jacob, perhaps Isaac had had a change of heart or maybe he never repented. After all, Isaac was blind, so the darkness maybe created an even playing field. Well, I doubt that Jacob thought the mystery wrestler was Isaac or Laban. The more likely candidate, of course, in the context of this story, is his brother Esau, right? Perhaps Esau had snuck up on Jacob in the night to get his long overdue revenge. Maybe Esau had come to settle the score by killing him in one last wrestling match to the death. The text of Genesis 32 seems to invite this, and especially in verse 24, it says, and a man wrestled with him until the break of day. And it doesn't say God wrestled with him, it just says man So Esau maybe is the best guess, Laban second, Isaac a distant third. But like a good mystery, the story turns our speculation on its head. 
the mystery wrestler turns out to be God himself. This becomes clear after God touches Jacob's hip and puts it out of socket. Jacob obviously isn't wrestling with a man. And what happens next is important. God tells Jacob to let him go before daybreak. Why? So that Jacob doesn't see his face, the face of God. But Jacob's not about to give up that easy. No, first, he demands from God a blessing. And the Lord concedes. Notice that God doesn't rebuke Jacob for this demand. No, God answers his prayer and gives Jacob a new name, Israel. God says in verse 28, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And then in verse 30, Jacob renames the place Peniel, which means face of God. Verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Surprisingly. And then in verse 31, as the sun's coming up, Jacob limps on his hip as he crosses the river. What is God teaching Jacob here? What is he teaching us? What do we make of this? Well, the main takeaway is that Jacob has been wrestling with God all along. This was not Jacob's first wrestling match with God. Jacob's 97 years of struggle with men were 97 years of struggling with God. During their wrestling match by the river, God had hidden himself from Jacob under the cover of darkness so that Jacob thought, that he was wrestling a mere man, but the mystery wrestler was God all along. And this night of wrestling is a picture, a microcosm of Jacob's whole life. Jacob thought that for 97 years he had been wrestling with mere men and that was it. But it was really God all along. Jacob had been wrestling with God for 97 years. God had been hiding behind Esau, Isaac, Laban. But now, after a century of hiding, God finally shows his face. It's as if if God is saying, Jacob, you thought you were wrestling with mere men your whole life, just as you thought you were wrestling with a mere man all night. But all along, you were wrestling with me. I was wrestling with you. Like a father and a son. And I was using these men to train you. To transform you. And to bring you to the mature man that you are today. This story not only helps us understand what has been going on in Jacob's 97 years of life. It also helps us understand what is going on in our lives. Behind every one of your trials... And disappointments is Peniel, the face of God. You're not wrestling with your boss or the government or your child's sickness or the people in your life that make it difficult. You're wrestling with God. 
You're not wrestling with an inconsiderate husband or a fussy wife. You're not wrestling with your in-laws or poor health or poor finances or anything else. Primarily, if you're a child of God, then your struggle is with God. All the struggling, all the wrestling that you have faced and will face is a struggle with the God who made you and the God who saved you, the God who loves you. And it's for your own good. Your physical ailments, your vocational failures, your difficult child, your suffering family members, the people in your life trying to undermine you, trying to take what is rightfully yours, the job you don't like, the spouse you have a hard time loving or respecting, hiding behind all of these circumstances that God has put has given you in his good providence is your God, the face of God. Living by faith means recognizing this because you can't see it with your eyeballs. You can't reason through it with your brain always. Living by faith means recognizing that you are wrestling with a loving God who trains you, who disciples you, who chastises you, who transforms you because he loves you. In the book of Job, have you ever wondered why God takes up so much space in the book of Job, recording the words of Job's three so-called friends? It's because the book of Job is about Job's wrestling with God ultimately. One of the ways God wrestles with Job is by sending him these three undiscerning, unsympathetic know-it-alls. They start out okay, but they don't end well. These three friends are Job's peniel, the face of God for Job. This is how God shows up in our lives and brings us to maturity. Trials have have a way of making us feel as though God were absent, don't they? That's the logical conclusion. According to our reasoning sometimes. But scripture teaches us to interpret them as manifestations of God's presence. The exact opposite of how we reason. It takes a lot of faith to accept that reality. The big, one of the biggest objections that atheists have to the existence of God is that he allows so much suffering. But rather than seeing God's absence in suffering, the Bible says that our suffering is precisely where God is to be found. Suffering is how God comes to us, one of the ways that God comes to us. And when we find him there, we will find him making us wiser. We'll find him making us humbler, And meeker and more faithful, making us better leaders and better followers, better husbands and wives and children and fathers and mothers, better citizens, better employers and better employees, better church members, better brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, Jacob emerges from the from this wrestling match. With a limp. 
He's not in, he's not intact. He's got a big limp and it's also true that he emerges stronger than ever. Perhaps Paul had this story in mind when he said, when I am weak, then I am strong. This is Jacob's story, but it's also yours. When you are weak, then you are strong. God doesn't want people skipping out on all of the hard wrestling matches, even the lifelong ones. God's goal for you is not necessarily that you walk with no limp. His will for you may not be that you have a smooth gait. It wasn't for Jacob. It may be better for you and for God's kingdom that you have a hitch in your step or maybe a thorn in your side. You see, he wants battle-tough Christians who limp along, soldiers who have served faithfully in the trenches and who know how to fight till the break of day without giving up. See, it's a big mistake to think that the Christian life is about health and wealth and wellness and prosperity, all those. In fact, God promises the exact opposite, really. Becoming a Christian means entering into God's lifelong training program. It means having to wrestle with Esau's and Laban's. With mistreatment and disappointments and failures and persecution and sickness. And it means you have to wrestle with with these things until you prevail. Giving up is not an option. God has not called you to come up with solutions or to figure out why always he wants you to endure this or that trial. Your calling is simple. Wrestle until the end. Fight to the bitter end. And fight faithfully by trusting God. Clinging to Him and His promises. By obeying Him through the trials that He sees fit to bring your way. This is how you wrestle with God and prevail. Jacob was the chosen one. God wanted him to have the covenant blessings. The Abrahamic promises belonged to him. The Messiah would come from him, not Esau. And what did this mean for him? What did all these promises mean for him? For 97 years, it meant wrestling and warfare. So brothers and sisters in Christ, you have been chosen. You are in that same line, as it were. All the covenant blessings belong to you because you belong to Jesus The Abrahamic promises are yours every bit as much as they were Jacob's. In fact, you're more a child of Abraham than Jacob was because you are in Jesus, the true son of Abraham. And because you are God's child, God wants you to struggle along. He's called you to struggle, to limp by faith. One of the interesting things about this passage is that it seems to present God as someone who is struggling to prevail over Jacob, right? Apparently, he has to plead with Jacob, let me go. I need to get away. Of course, the passage isn't saying that Jacob is just as, was just as powerful as God, that this was some kind of even match. If God had so desired, he could have spoken a word and Jacob would have evaporated into non-existence. We know this because at one point 
we see God reach down and put his hip out of socket at, at will. God is in complete control of the situation, but God wants to see how long Jacob will wrestle. Of course, he knows all things, but he's testing Jacob. Will Jacob make it till the till the break of day? Will he demand a blessing until he gets it, till I give it to him? Or will he give up using his exhaustion and his dislocated hip as excuses? When my boys were little, uh, they they would ask for something. Then before I gave it to them, I'd make four of them wrestle me and get me to the ground before I would give it to them. And I never let them prevail right away. I had to make them work for it. Maybe make them think that they weren't going to prevail. Usually I would end up letting them win so they could get it, but never right away and never without a good fight and sometimes not without somebody getting banged up a little. That's what our Father, our Heavenly Father does with us. That's how He trains us. And He does it because we need it. There are just some lessons in life that we can't possibly learn otherwise. Maybe our heads are too thick, our hearts are too hard. Many things can't be learned from a lecture or a book or a blog post or even a conversation with someone wiser. Some things can only be learned during an all-night wrestling match with God that leaves you limping, perhaps for life. It's easy for us to think that we are wiser and humbler and smarter, more godly than we actually are. You know, before we get married, we are so in love that we feel sorry for those people who talk who have been married and talk about how marriage is something you have to work at. We're not going to have to work at it. But then we get married and our wisdom grows exponentially. We find out how selfish and petty we can be. As we wrestle with our spouse. Five, 10, 20, 50 years, we find out more and more about what love really is through this wrestling. And yet at the same time, if we're wrestling faithfully, our love grows deeper than it ever was before we got married when we thought it was so deep. But this kind of maturity, this kind of wisdom and deeper love, they never would have been possible if we had not gone through the actual process of wrestling, the hardships, and in wrestle faithfully. And we can take heart that even Jesus had to learn this way. This is how God ordained it for his son as a man. Hebrews says that even Jesus had to learn obedience through the things that he suffered. Chapter five, his Esau and Isaac and Laban were Herod and Pilate and the chief priests and the elders and even Satan himself. But Jesus wasn't wrestling with Herod and Pilate and the chief priests. Or Satan. These were his peniel, the face of God. Jesus was wrestling with his father in heaven. God was getting down on the floor with his son. And training him to be the head of the church and the king of all creation, bringing him to maturity through the things he suffered. Because of this, Jesus has the wisdom to sit at the right hand of God and to rule his family and his creation with wisdom and maturity. 
as the God-man. And I want you to notice one last thing. Notice what Jacob says to Esau when he finally meets up with him. When he finds out that Esau, he appears to have come in peace. Or at least by the time Jacob gets up there, he's at peace. In Genesis 33, verse 10, Jacob says to Esau, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Now Jacob knows how to interpret the face of Esau. For 97 years, Esau's face was really the face of God. The thing I want you to take away from this passage is that God is in the midst of your wrestling, your trials. The most difficult thing going on in your life right now is God's presence. Your struggle is with your heavenly father. Whatever it is that you're wrestling with, the face of God is hiding behind it. And he's using it to turn you into a more faithful son or daughter. And at dawn, when the sun comes up, if you have been faithful, if you have endured, then you will likely be hobbling along. If so, know that God wants you limping. But by the strength that Jesus gives you, by His Holy Spirit, you will have prevailed by faith. And then you can look back on your place of suffering, of struggle, and like Jacob, you can rename it. That's what he did. He renamed it Peniel, face of God, because it will be clear to you that you are wrestling with God. And when you look back, you will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God was with you all along. You will know that all along the way, he was as close to you as he was to Jacob during this wrestling match. You will see one day that your place of wrestling is also your place of blessing. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your grace that helps us to wrestle with you and with men faithfully. And we give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen.